Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Duncan, welcome back to One Sweet Dream, Season 2. Thanks, Diana. I'm delighted to be back. Well, I'm delighted you're here. There's so much to talk about. I know. It's always the way with the Beatles, isn't it? Uh, just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. They do, and they're pulling us back in in a big way right now. Wow, we're back even a little sooner than expected because there's things we just need to address. Yeah, the last uh, couple of weeks have been so dominated by media coverage, either of the Let It Be box set, or Peter Jackson's Get Back, or Paul's Lyrics book, or some combination that encompasses all of these. And, you know, a lot of things have been getting the headlines, probably chief amongst them. Um, Paul's claim, I wasn't the one who instigated the split. Oh. And I know it's shocking, isn't it? Um, what, what did you think of that when you first read that? Were, were you shocked? Was this news to you? <laughs> shocked? But I was shocked that the world's media seems to have all collectively decided to pretend that something that we've known for 50 years is new news, which obviously it's not. But it has created a fair amount of discussion, and I think it's a little bit of a taster of what's to come. Like, I'm actually shocked at how much people just jump back into arguing about the breakup in the period. In this circular um, way, like, like yeah. no, no ground is ever gained. We're always back to the same point. <laughs> it's true. And as somebody who spent a lot of time going into painful detail about this period, I feel like jumping in and saying, but wait, 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 wait. We know some stuff now. Um, and I just thought that given the headlines, that we should jump in because, you know, I certainly have a point of view and I'm pretty sure that you have a point of view. The major headline that has been making news uh, is that Paul asserts that John Lennon wanted a divorce. And I assume there's some person somewhere that is reading this going, what? But generally, I don't think this is shocking to many people, but it has created a lot of buzz. And uh, some of my friends have mentioned it to me. You know, they, like, they don't really understand what is controversial about this, but they know it seems like it's controversial. 
Um, and I just think it's fascinating how immediately it dredged up the old arguments. And actually, sadly, there is a shocking amount of vitriol towards Paul McCartney. Um, and I wish he would leave this battle to the rest of us at this point because he can't win. But he is determined to tell this story that John asked for the divorce and that he was crushed. And I wanted to have a conversation about why he is so determined to tell this story this way. Yes, let's look at that. While it's hot off the skillet, as Paul <laughs> likes to say for some reason. He does? Yeah, yeah. In the uh, interviews he was giving for the uh, Flowers in the Dirt re-release, like every interview... This, this is a man who knows his McCartney, by the way. <laughs> every interview he was talking about the demos that he did with Elvis Costello. And he said, oh, it's great to hear these songs hot off the skillet, as I like to say. <laughs> as only you like to say, Paul. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, well, let's jump in. Great. jump in, I think we need a bit of a disclaimer here. Duncan and I are going to explore Paul's ongoing and potentially unhealthy obsession with communicating that John asked for the divorce from the Beatles, thereby instigating their split. But I don't necessarily believe that John's divorce statement was wholly responsible for the Beatles' breakup, or that John even meant it as definitively as Paul is suggesting right now, for a number of reasons. John's emotional volatility at the time reflected he probably wasn't making thoughtful, well-considered decisions that he should be held to. In the weeks leading up to John's declaration, John quit heroin, relapsed, proposed for ways for the Beatles to move forward, gave an interview where he claimed that the Beatles were his best friends and the only people he wanted to record with, maneuvered to get his guy Klein into power, all the while engaged in an escalating and highly emotional battle for Northern songs, which they lost the day before John asked for the divorce. Not an ideal set of circumstances for making a life-changing decision, nor um, probably a time when somebody should be held to their decision. In fact, I don't think that George Harrison took John as seriously as Paul did in 1969. Absolutely. I think wisely George Harrison took John's request for a divorce with a grain of salt or two, perhaps because he wasn't in the room at the time. And he communicated a similar uncertainty to all of the Beatles when it mm -hmm. came to the subject of their future well into 1970. So to trace everything back to this September meeting when the subject of divorce was raised, not for the first time, I think right. is quite a hindsight observation on Paul's past. It's creating a kind of a through line of certainty for events when nothing like is certain. Right. John gave a number of interviews in the next six months when he walked back his declaration, or at least 
showed an openness to negotiation. By December 1969, he was already explaining that the impact of the Northern Song's battle had put them all into this terrible state of mind. And he said it wasn't serious, that it just had really impacted them, and it was too bad, explaining potentially that this was the cause of his reaction. He also said within days that, you know, he had found out what he wanted to do and he would prefer if the Beatles would come with him if they wanted to. So there's a number of interviews that would indicate that it was not a solid decision on John's part. And the fact that Paul is communicating that this was the moment where the Beatles definitively split um, does lead to the question, why is Paul so desperate to point out that John asked for the divorce? Because it's a lot more nuanced than he would have us believe. And that's what we're going to explore in this episode. April 1970, which was about a week after the Paul Quits the Beatles yeah. headline, yeah. you know, that he kind of accidentally quit the Beatles. I mean, that's debatable, but I, I don't think he intended his statement to be as definitive. No, because it's just, that's why he didn't say anything definitive in the statement. That's right. I think it was a passive aggressive yeah. way shot at the other Beatles, mm. uh, you know, sort of saying, this is where I'm at. I don't think he meant to telegraph to the world that it was done because I don't think Paul necessarily wanted it to be done. No. But the media ensured that it was difficult for them to reconcile. Although I don't even think that it was done after that. I think that they still had the opportunity to reconcile, but this is a different story. But Paul actually did say to Ray Connolly, who I interviewed and we discussed this uh, in, in the last season, but this is what Paul said. I didn't leave the Beatles. The Beatles have left the Beatles, but no one wants to say the party's over. Last year, John said he wanted a divorce. All right, so do I. I want to give him that divorce. Mm. So he is quite tough here about, you asked for the divorce, I'm going to give it to you. But he's very clear that John asked for the divorce. Mm. But I sort of feel like Paul understands that John's divorce statement was a bit of a power move and potentially a negotiation tactic. And it seems like Paul's calling his bluff here, just saying, you asked for it, I'm going to give it to you. But he also concedes that the Beatles have left the Beatles, but no one wants to say the party's over. And that seems to chime with things he would say about, um, we come full circle. That's right. There wasn't anything left to do, seems to have been his, his general perspective for a long time, whether or not that's being revised more recently. He says later on he was not surprised by it, Mm. the end of the Beatles. I mean, if you look at all of Paul's songs from 1969, it's like the long and winding road, let it be, golden Mm. slumbers, once there was a way to get back home. You know, he seems to be saying goodbye repeatedly throughout the year that Paul McCartney 
wrote a long goodbye that ended with the end. I don't think he wanted it, but I think he probably was coming to terms with it and processing it emotionally through his songs throughout the year. thinking was much more nuanced, much more sophisticated, but I think he has learned that that doesn't do well with the public. So now he's going hard with just a very simplified, basic, unfortunately too simple answer. I see, see he's learned that it's tricks and it's gimmicks and it's salesmanship and you have to sell peace like a product, peddle it That's like right. so. I do think that he learned from John that talking headlines, yeah. all this like the party's over, the Beatles have left the Beatles, that got him nowhere. And so now I think he's being much more laser focused in terms yeah. of what he wants to communicate. And it does sound more aggressive. But I think that, you know, he's almost 80 and he's like, I don't have time to mess around anymore. If I do one thing, it's going to be to make sure that people understand that I did not break up the Beatles. Yeah. No matter what the question is about, that's what he's answers. <laughs> no matter what the question, and you can see that in the sample of his uh, lyrics, it is concerning how often certain songs that have nothing to do with the breakup veer back into breakup territory. So I really think that this is something that is circling Paul's mind, like when we are getting a glimpse into Paul's brain that this is one of his issues that he's really obsessive about, that he wants to get right, you know? Legacy. Legacy. In April 1970, Paul says, no, 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 it wasn't me who quit. It was John who asked for the divorce. And then John, later in that year, talks to Rolling Stone in the Lennon Remembers interview. He again confirms that he did ask for the divorce. Mm. So that's the second time it's mentioned. And then Paul, a few months later after that, talks about it in Life magazine. And he says, um, this is in April, March, April 1971. Yeah. He said, uh, so then John says, anyway, I'm leaving the group. He said, I want a divorce. He literally said, I want a divorce. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, so he was clear. They're all clear that John said this. And John's trying to take ownership of, I quit the band. And yet it seems like it didn't matter what they said. They could not correct the story. Mm. at that point. And actually, interestingly, John said in Lennon Remembers, he tells the story about the divorce, 
But then the story that they paint in the lawsuit, like a month later, is that everybody else wanted the group to continue except for Paul. Yeah. You know, they kind of paint Paul as the bad guy that was the egomaniac that made it difficult for everyone. And I, I don't know why nobody bothered to read a copy of Rolling Stone where John does his <laughs> discussion of what he thinks. And I'm not sure which one is more true. I Because I think that John's divorce statement wasn't as definitive as Paul is trying to make it seem right now. Yeah. I'm I'm with you on that one. And this thought that's been sort of playing over in my head is that John, Paul, and probably George and Ringo too, would have had more than one thought or feeling or impulse <laughs> about this. Yeah. Um, so it's a case of a, a kind of a a tissue of emotion that's quite complex and you ask them at any one point in time one bit of it might be more prominent than yes, another yes, yes. just why they're going to give sort of conflicting messages uh, and and so for, for Paul to reduce John down to this one insistent comment I want right, right, right. as though that's all there is to this story it's reductive well, well- it is. It's reductive. It's, it simplifies what is a very complex, like there's a reason why we had to have 11 episodes and 30 hours of discussion about it. <laughs> if, it if it was really easy, we could have had a 10 minute discussion about it. I think that to me, you know, the fact that this is headline news again in 2021, after we've heard about it repeatedly over the years, and the, the fact that Paul has asked about the breakup in every single interview he does, reflects to me that we haven't been satisfied by the answer, yeah. which which speaks to the point, it's not simple. He's trying to be reductive and say, it's really simple. John wanted out, he was done. And it's funny because he's given us the answer and we all kind of collectively go, yeah, okay. Uh, mm, okay, thanks, Paul. Um, so why, why did it happen? You know, like if it actually explained the matter to us, mm. we would let it go. Yeah, you know what I mean. I I do. I think people aren't so pig-headed that, <laughs> that if Paul actually gave a really pithy, satisfying answer, yeah, that it, you know it, it wouldn't cause days and days of endless argument on Twitter and Facebook messaging and 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 other things about and, whether he's right or whether he's wrong and what things he's not considering and um, yeah. So I, I agree with you that um, that this is a case of of no answer that's ever been given on on an individual occasion gives us the the complete story or satisfies the the desire to know what really happened right i think there's both the fact that there's a lot of different perspectives so we can look at things from a number of different ways but i also think i think that it suggests that all the stories that we've been fed are not correct because if there was an element of truth, I honestly think we would all collectively go, okay, I get it. And it wouldn't it wouldn't be interesting to us anymore. The 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 fact that we continue to obsess about it yeah. suggests that we kind of intuitively know that that's not the story.
like she does Ooh, she does Yes, she does And if John sets up this analogy and likens this relationship to a marriage and saying, I want a divorce. For yeah. anyone to reach that point, that is, that is not the be-all and end-all. Paul can talk about John as having instigated a split, but that yeah. doesn't absolve him of any culpability as to why this relationship is broken down. I mean, if you want another analogy, John saying, I want a divorce, is the very tip of a very That's large right. submerged iceberg. And it's the That's iceberg right. that people are trying to grapple with, not just the little exposed tip of it, which is John <laughs> saying those four words. That's right. And I mean, we were sold on the fact that this was a marriage made in heaven. And two years before, people around him had said that John had been so committed, loved this marriage more than anything in the world. And then we're all supposed to just go, huh, it's, it doesn't explain it. That's yeah. why we're all like, well, why? You know, like, yes, okay, he asked for the divorce, but was that the tipping point? Did you push him to it, Paul? Is he just an asshole? You know, like, because there's such a reversal from them being the best friends in the world and John being so in to John just being done. And I think that that's where the narrative of John and Yoko plays into this. Like, well, John just fell so in love. Like, if you buy into that, you're like, okay, well, I don't really understand why he had to blow up everything in his life when he fell in love, because most people don't, but okay. But then when we actually take it to a human level and just think, no, if somebody is really committed to something and really loves it, somebody else can only take them away from it if there's already problems there. The one that I keep coming back to, and it's they used it in the anthology, is John saying, everyone around us was paranoid, saying, why is she here? Why are they together all of the time? When for us, it was perfectly natural because we were in love and everything is free and open when you're in love. And I, 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 get, I get that, but I also want to say, John, some of your actions over this exact period don't seem to me to be very free and open. They seem to be hostile and defensive a lot of the time. He also talked about the fact that they were on heroin at this time because yeah. of the pain. You know, John and Yoko are great storytellers. They love to talk about their love. And it doesn't mean that I don't believe in their love, or oh, I know not. you also believe in their love, but yeah. they like to mythologize their relationship. And, you know, the, the reality is they were on heroin in this time. And I, I do understand that... that um, there would be pressure and anxiety and stress coming from unwarranted and genuinely misogynistic or racist attacks yeah, at Yoko. Absolutely. And, the, and the pressure of that would lead you to be defensive and angry and upset. Yeah. Um, but I don't think to the point where you would, you would lash out at the closest friends who are being the most supportive of your relationship. That's right. That's right. It was very surprising when we dug into the interviews from 1969 where Paul repeatedly supported John and Yoko publicly. It's like all of this stuff, when we dig into it, it's kind of like, oh, there's a different story here. It's not what we've been led to believe. And so this is my big plug for people who haven't listened to the breakup series to go and listen. And you brought up the issue, which is that when we're looking at what's underneath the surface of the tip of the iceberg, that is the John wanted a divorce. Nobody's disputing that John asked for the divorce. Well, apparently a bunch of people don't know about it, but you know, anybody who's into <laughs> <laughs> the Beatles world knows that John asked for the divorce. So that's not surprising. Everybody keeps asking Paul, why did the divorce 
happened? Why did you break up? And he's like, well, because John asked for it. And even John himself, like two years later, was like, why did Paul give me the divorce? He literally asked that. He was like, why did Paul give me the divorce? Uh, who did he say that to? He asked Lee remember. Eastman. Oh, wow. It was Lee Eastman, remember? He was like, why did Paul take me to to court? And he was like, because you asked for a divorce. And he was like, that That's was immature. Childish. Yeah, That's yeah, childish. Yeah. You know, as in John was like, you weren't supposed to take me seriously, mm. you know? And um, and so Paul keeps being asked about like, why did you guys break up? And he's like, well, cause John asked for it. And, and that's not what people are asking. They're asking like, what led to the situation? I mean, it's, it's easy for me to sit here having never been in the same room as Paul McCartney, um, assuming that I wouldn't be cowed by his presence. And, yeah. you know, just asking stupid questions like, how did you, did you ever dream a song, Paul? Um, but, you know, I would like to think that if I asked him a question about his solo album and he came back mm -hmm. with a very defensive response about how John instigated the split because he literally mm -hmm. said, I want a divorce, I would have the presence of mind to say, why do you think he asked for that? Yes. Because I, I just yes. don't see anyone actually, you know, try to dig a little deeper. I know, I know. There's a lot of questions that I would be asking. You know what I'm going to put out there? That if I ever get to interview Paul... I will ask those questions. Who knows? I may lose my head, but I, I think I think I could keep it together. Where's the band? Where's Harry songs? Oh, should we do uh, hypocrites and write that bit? Do you know the other bits? My bits, I don't. Words are flowing out. Sick and tired of rearing lines by seasick, narrow minded shorts, hypocrite. All I want is the truth. We should change the heads, tell me some truth. I've had enough of reading lines by soon sick, down, hard sided politicians. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. He does have his traditional go to's where John just fell too in love. That's always confusing to me because Paul also got married that same year. And so it's like, well, you didn't need to blow up the band, Paul. You say that Linda's the love of your life. So why is John's love so different? But I think he likes to talk about that because it suggests it wasn't a creative issue. You know, John and Yoko kind of positioned it as they were just more interested in what they were doing together. And when you look at it, they didn't actually do that much well, in this time. They did a lot of interviews, you know. That's right. When when Paul says things like, oh, I always felt like he had to clear the decks of us to make room for her. Um, and, you know, they they were so all-consumed and, and essentially they were one person and all the yeah, self-pathologizing yeah. stuff. When I yeah. look at all of that footage, or at least what I've seen of the 57 hours, it's not as though John and Yoko are wrapped up in each other all the time. No. He's there at his side, but John seems very engaged with lots of other people. And I mean, the, there are moments when they're kind of canoodling together, but more often than not, he's playing music or he's well, he, talking he to Glyn Johns or George Martin or someone else. And yeah, well, Yoko spends a lot of time looking kind of bored with little to do. <laughs> like his minder sitting next to him, yeah. you know? But it, it's true. In fact, one of the things that was interesting that Giles Martin said was that he noticed that it seemed like John and Paul were very focused on each other, which is something that Phoebe and I noticed. I was astounded 
how much interaction and, and, and under the surface communicating there was between John and Paul. I don't think that they were trying to rekindle. I think that the, the relationship was still fully kindled. I think mm. they were just trying to negotiate how do we exist with other partners in our life. Yeah. Giles mentioned that. He was like, he thinks that George in some ways was a bit ostracized in this period because John and Paul mm. were so focused on each mm. other. And I, I kind of suspect that was always the case. Mm. But because Yoko was very present, but also Linda was around. Linda's just a lot more sensitive. Yoko kind of was just okay with sitting there and, you know, and as we've said, we think that John both liked having her there, but was also using Yoko to a certain extent, I believe. Um, and so she was there a lot. But John and Paul are waging their own emotional warfare or whatever they're doing in this period. And uh, and it was interesting to me that Giles noticed that going through the tapes. Let me ask a, a question. Um, somebody said recently can't remember where it was, that they suspect Yoko Ono finds people very suspicious when they do things for altruistic reasons. Like she, she can't comprehend why someone would do something that, that didn't serve them directly and wasn't a power play. Do you think yeah. that there's any truth to that? There is nobody who's more aware of power plays than Yoko Ono. Yeah. Uh, and, and I say that not because I don't like Yoko. I have a lot of respect for Yoko. But I do think she is highly aware of uh, power dynamics. Mm. You know, she's interviewed in, in the Let It Be period. And she talks about how John lost his power around 66 and Paul got more powerful. But she said, now John's more powerful because he has me. Like she's very, very aware of power dynamics. And so... That doesn't totally answer your question. Like that's just saying that I think she is aware yeah. of power dynamics, and uh, because she understands that John has more power in the studio with having her there, he certainly has more tension. I don't know how much more power, but he has more tension with her there, and everybody's bending over backwards to placate them. But in terms of altruism, well. I, I don't know that. I do know that John wasn't sure why Paul had set them back up again mm. after they had broken up. She came in through the bathroom window Protected by a silver spoon But now she sucks her thumb and also, we have from May Pang's book, she talks about how both John and Yoko, and especially Yoko, could spiral into paranoia, mm. which, again, sort of leads to the thought that they are paranoid about people's motives. But I don't know if I've got anything to support that, except for the fact that that makes sense to me. Yeah. What do you think? Um, yeah, it makes sense to me, too. I wish it were easier for me to be accommodating, as accommodating as Paul McCartney was to your co-owner. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes it, I, th I think it's because I, I don't understand her at, at some level. Like mm. the, the, the way her brain works is very, seems to me very foreign to mine. Um, and so it's harder for me to extend empathy, I guess. Um, so, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm deflecting your question by being self-critical. 
Well, I mean, this is the thing about Yoko is she doesn't necessarily show her vulnerable side that often, you know, and that's a bit of a problem. I think, I think if she did that, we would empathize with her more. Um, she did an audio diary in 1968, which is pretty crazy, but I also had a lot more empathy for her. Mm. I was like, okay, I both get her more and also think she's crazier than I thought she was. But it was good though, because it was like a little glimpse into Yoko's mind at that time. You know, she's really into John, very insecure and, and quite threatened by Paul, you know, and threatened by Cynthia. So she, you know, she has all of these insecurities that she doesn't really talk about, but that makes her a lot more human. Yeah. And yeah, there's a, phrase from one of my from from May Pang's book that that I can't help being very present in my mind that passage about how whenever the subject of somebody who was reasonably close to John came up Yoko seemed to manage to steer the conversation towards how untrustworthy and conniving they were and how they never really loved John to begin with that's right that's right it just seems to me like such a such an awful thing to do. <laughs> well, it is. And and you can see how John struggled with his relationships. And, and you know what, if we're going to give Yoko the benefit of the doubt, I think that's probably coming from a place of insecurity herself, mm. you know, of paranoia. Both the fact that she may be doing this to undermine his relationships with him because she's insecure, but also just because she doesn't trust people. Yeah. And I think that was a problem, unfortunately, between Paul and Yoko, is I think Yoko never really got Paul. I, I do think Yoko is often very interested in Paul. Mm. You see her in Let It Be watching him a lot. Uh, I do think she's fascinated by him, but I don't think she trusts him. And I, I think that was frustrating for Paul because I do think that Paul did what was best for John, like really mm. tried to do what was best for John. I, I think so. Yeah, you mentioned Let It Be. And I think some people who who would hear a statement from Paul that says John asked for a divorce and would be surprised by that um, are also the kind of people who might not be aware this film exists. And (laughs) something else that that might lead people to think that none of the footage that's ever that's been shot um, over January 69 um, has ever seen the light of day before is that they they state that. In the new trailer, they say over 57 hours of the most intimate footage ever shot of the band. The footage has been locked in a vault for over half a century, unseen until now. Word for word, what appears in the trailer. Does it it frustrate you that actually that's not true? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of things about the Beatles frustrate me because, you know, they just just decide they're going to tell a new story and they're like, eh, whatever. There seems to be this magical... Um, consumer that they, (laughs) I'm not sure who they're talking to, because if you're talking to the fans, we know that's not true. We all know it, you know? Yeah. And what we're saying suggests the Beatles are incredibly alert and and canny, and they're they're making an active decision to choose to tell a version of their story that cancels other versions out. Yeah, I agree. And whether that's effective is debatable because yeah, there's a lot of general people that won't know and that will watch this. It seems to be, they are always going for a mass play Mm. versus satisfying their truer fans. And there's a lot of truer fans. So, I mean, if I were them, 
I would have rewritten it in a way that was legit because right now in today's culture, we can pull apart everything. And that brings us back to Paul simplifying the story and he's creating a narrative that he wants and he's doing this hard and he's doing it for a reason. Can I give you the reasons that I think he's doing it? Please, tell me what you think. think there's four reasons why he does this and yeah. and um we talked about this a lot in the series probably way too much people are like yeah you said it like 18 times but i'm just gonna hit on this issue again so i i think the first reason is that i don't think we can overstate how much the breakup dynamics wounded paul's soul and you know, I don't necessarily think it was the breakup of the Beatles that bothered Paul as much as being blamed for it, being made the villain for it, being made into the monster and being separated from the other three. In other words, I think that if they had amicably decided as the four of them to break up and there had been no blame, I don't think that we would have had a Paul McCartney in 2021 still talking about it and talking about how depressed he was. I think that the horror of the period comes from the fact that he got blamed for it for the rest of his life. As much as I think things have moved on and we've, you know, even Rolling Stone in like 2009 or whenever it was, looked at the breakup again and shocker, Rolling Stone was kind of like, ah, maybe it was John and George. Like maybe they pushed Paul to the point where he had no option to leave and they treated him really badly. And even Rolling Stone, is absolving Paul. So the story is moving on. But like I said, it feels like Paul's still fighting a battle that he had to really fight hard in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And it was especially brutal in the, I think in the 70s and the early to mid 80s after John died, you know, it was even more aggressive then. And I think it so deeply wounded Paul to be the bad guy and unfairly the bad guy. Yeah that he has decided that even though he's giving away all his power and kind of looking like a schmuck, saying like, well, I didn't want the Beatles to break up and I just love the Beatles so much and John just didn't care, even though he makes himself look kind of a little bit pathetic in that situation, I think he's like, I don't give a fuck. I prefer that story than being the villain. Yeah, it's similar to things that you've said before. I think I've said before too about how um, his his tactic of uh, emphasizing the the beard and alcoholism and Scotland yes. combination, uh, yeah, overplays the the extent to which he was reeling and depressed. Uh, yes. and not not to say that he wasn't, but that yes. you know when you know you've looked into the timeline of this. Um, and it's not as though he spent 18 months on the Mull of Kintyre wailing right. into his pillow. It, it's Which like, you would think yeah, from every account. The, the, way that, the way that he talks about it, the way other people report it, it yeah, it yes. seems like that that's what's happened. Um, but this is, a, this is maybe five or six weeks, isn't it? Well, he was only in Scotland. Like the great Scottish fall of 69 is, was only three and a half weeks. Three and a half weeks. There you go. Yeah, and I mean, 
I do get the fact that the Beatles lived about 20 years in every year. So probably three and a half weeks to Paul McCartney, the world's biggest workaholic, insane person, probably seemed like two years to you and me. But it wasn't. And actually, fun fact, there is a recording from Paul at that time, from October 24th, 1969, when a very intrepid BBC journalist, Chris Drake, went up to see Paul in Scotland. Now, um, it's interesting because this is a few days before Paul's freak out with the life journalists, which actually puts his reaction to them in context. You know, uh, like I can kind of understand why he freaked out with them. Yeah. I mean, the poor guy, if the poor guy was down and wanted to escape, the world was not letting him. You know, uh, what with the rumors of his death and the reporters checking in on him every five minutes. I mean, he just could not get any peace and quiet. So, I, I mean, I think he sounds tired here. You know, t- everybody can judge for themselves, but I think he sounds tired here, but not quite as desperate as we might have been led to believe. Yeah. But then again, you know, who knows what was going on when the press wasn't there. Knowing Paul McCartney as a millionaire, I could just imagine the sort of place he'd have. A magnificent castle-like affair which he'd persuaded some wealthy Scottish laird to part with for many thousands of pounds. A fabulous mansion with Rolls Royces and Aston Martins parked outside and scores of servants inside. But I was wrong. Paul, his wife Linda and their two children live in a little broken down old farmhouse which even a poor farm labourer would think twice about accepting. He drives either a tractor or an ancient looking Land Rover and there isn't room for one servant, let alone scores of them. And to get there is almost impossible. First, my car got stuck in the mud and I had to walk two miles across the deserted moorland in a bitterly cold gale force wind before finally arriving at the Beatles' haven. It's a drab building with cracked walls and a black corrugated roof. The only touch of brightness has been added by Paul himself. He's painted the front door five different colours. He's the first to admit it's no palace. Listen, it's a very scruffy farmhouse. Uh, I've been looking for a sort of posher one, or, you know, like you say, one that someone with money would get. But in, if down south or anywhere else where you might expect me to get a place, there's always um, Major Trubshaw living next door, or else you're living in the squire's manor house. And I just resent that, you know, I don't really like being the squire of the district. I got a kick of, uh, when the first time I came here, the fellow at this next man, he said, I'm looking a new laird. You know, well, I quite enjoyed that, because, I mean, it's only a scruffy little farm and, and the new laird, you know, that. That's, I like that, but I mean, I really wouldn't like it if I turned up on the Sussex border and they said, oh, you know, good morning, squire. And I really don't like that. I'm just, I enjoy things more when they're a bit, you know, a bit more working class. And working class sums up the interior too. The stone-floored kitchen and two small bedrooms are sparsely furnished, but we didn't stay inside. Accompanied by his wife, Linda, and the elder daughter, Heather, who was playing with her old English sheepdog, Martha, we walked across the moors and sat on a windswept bank. Paul freely admits that even the Scots are surprised by his way of living. I think the locals, the people in, the, in Campbelltown itself, think I'm a bit of a nut living out in the wilds like this, you know. But all the other people who live out in the wilds think the people in Campbelltown are a bit nuts for living in the city when they've when they got all this beautiful land around them. In fact, the locals see very little of him anyway. He lives contentedly in isolation, walking in the day and watching television at night. He does have a telephone, but it's nearly always left off the hook. He's in no hurry to return to civilization. There's no need to. done all my work for this year because uh, the Beatles have... We've made a film and another album. 
besides Abbey Road, which are unreleased yet. So I've finished my work till about March of next year, you know, so I'm laughing. So I may not be back in London at all this year, you know. With plenty of money and no work to do, the family can travel as they want. Uh, we just go how, it, how the fancy takes us, you know, if that's the way you say it. That's the way you say it, all right, but for a Beatle it's not that easy. Linda makes no secret of the fact that the latest rumours have upset them. And for somebody who is dealing with the breakup of a massive band, that three and a half weeks in Scotland that is so romanticized, I mean, I feel badly for him, but there's a lot of people who struggle for years and years getting yeah. over depressions about jobs. And so it's like, it's fairly contained. That doesn't mean that his depression didn't continue, but we do know that, you know, within a month after that, there's lots of fun photos from him being yeah. in Anguilla and he started recording his album and he talked about what it, you know, pleasurable time that was. Yeah. And by the time Ray Connolly talked to him in the, in April of 70, he said that Paul was over his depression by this point. Mm. And again, if you read any book, and I know this because I had to work so hard to figure out when the hell was this extended Scottish depression <laughs> period? Because there is no timeline. Yeah. It is all so vague. One would think it was from like 1969 to like, I would say that most books suggest that it's years. Yeah. But it's really like this, this four-week period where he's in Scotland and maybe ex it extended for another half a year or maybe the next year was not great for him. But the, the not getting out of bed drinking period, I think, was quite contained. Yeah, I suppose the, the, the point is that just as he likes to say, I was the beetliest beetle who ever beetled, and John was the one yes, who wanted yes, to yes. leave. This is a yeah. kind of a, a, a similar attempt to frame himself as the victim because being the victim is better than being the bad guy. That's right. And the fact that it's been blown out of proportion is so important because that, that is exactly what he's doing, is he's saying, I was not the guy that didn't like the Beatles. Look how depressed I was. Like that's his support for how much he wanted the Beatles to stay together. I got a yeah. Feeling, a feeling deep inside. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. I got a feeling. A feeling I can't hide. No, no. We just talked about the fact that Paul was initially um blamed but within a couple of weeks he corrected it he went and talked to Connolly and he said no no John wanted the divorce and it, like it that story refused to take hold but I think people in the know like Rolling Stone readers did actually figure out that John did say that he wanted the divorce but there's also another story that plays into it that is like well I asked for it but only because Paul was so horrible and made us all his side men yeah. that we all had to leave. And so Paul's dealing with both of these, like both the fact that he actually put the end to it with that Paul quit the Beatles and then he sued them and he was awful to work with. And yeah. so Paul is contending with all of these reasons that they blamed him. And I think there's a lot of reasons they blamed him. I think that all the other Beatles were upset and hurt by Paul because they didn't necessarily want the Beatles to end. I think they just wanted a break and wanted some time and we can debate that at a different time, but they were upset with him. And this is Paul's support that I love the Beatles. There is a reason why Paul talks about how depressed he was. He wants to counteract all of that. Yeah. You know how they, there's often that story people tell and it, and it, it 
changes, but it's it's mostly John. That you know, um, John might start mouthing off about Paul or George or whoever. But if you, as an outsider, said something critical, then he would get very defensive. And it's yeah. that idea of you know, um, we can criticize members of our family, but no one else is allowed to do it. Sometimes I wonder if there's an element of that to Paul's actions in 1970 that that John or George or Ringo might have been thinking. It's one thing to sit in a closed room amongst ourselves and say, "I want a divorce." It's a very different thing to make passive-aggressive comments that allude to that in a very public interview, and maybe the 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 anger or the upset is less. Paul said he wanted out of the group, and more he did it. In a way that didn't speak to us to our face. Do you know what I mean? I, I do, and I I do think that there is something to that. But you know, there there is the discussion that Paul called John. The, the I mean, before, yeah, yeah. But we know that John walked away from that conversation with a very different understanding of what was said. Yes, he did. did. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this, that's a different discussion about like why were they so upset. The thing about that statement is that suggests that they were okay with breaking up. They were just upset with how Paul did it. And I would argue that yeah, there could be something to that. But I also think that fundamentally they didn't want to break up. We've got George sending a note to the group or a letter to the group saying that it's selfish to break up and mm. you know messaging to the press that they'll figure it all out. They'll probably get back together after a break. We've got Derek Taylor writing a large article in the summer of 1970, saying that if Paul were to come back and ask John if he wanted to do it again, John probably would. Without a second thought, John probably would. So there's a lot of feelers in that year that they were still open yeah. to reconciling. So th that's why I, th I don't think it was just that Paul did it in the wrong way. Hmm. I, I, I suppose what I mean is that if if you do it in a public way, that makes it more real and real? makes it much harder yes. to take it back like I, yes. i hear people on a daily basis complaining about how much they hate their job or their boss it's a very yeah. different thing to do it to me than to do it in a meeting where your boss and a whole bunch of other important people are present oh yeah that's a different point that paul made it real exactly and that's what i mean because the, real. yes because you hear them even in let it be talking about a divorce mm. and paul wasn't upset about like they're talking about the divorce in early 1969 they probably would have talked about the divorce for the next five years mm. if paul hadn't made it real and paul's not upset about the word divorce then mm. and so something about john at that point when john says it we talk about that in the breakup series that there are multiple reasons why we think paul takes it more seriously at that point But we do also know that George heard that John had said this and was annoyed and did not take John seriously. Mm. So I think that there is an element of we can bitch and threaten stuff. And that's aligned with John talking to Lee Eastman saying, why did Paul do this? Like that was childish of him to actually carry through <laughs> with what I said. You know, that was me bitching. Mm. And so, yeah, I think there's a lot to that point. Yeah. But okay, that's the first reason. I, okay. I think that Paul is more traumatized than we can ever know by being blamed. Because I believe that Paul absolutely loved the Beatles. He did not want them to break up. Sure. He loved the music they were making together. And that was not his choice. To, he didn't want them to end. Mm. And I think all the Beatles wanted to continue. Paul was actively working to ensure their survival 
in terms of coming up with projects and stuff. So you can imagine how if you felt so invested in making something a success and people love the thing and then all of a sudden you're blamed for it, it must have been, I, I think there's like a deep fissure in his soul yeah. that is angry. Like, no, you're blaming the wrong person. Mm. So I think it never quite healed. Mm. And he gives away all of his power in order to be not the bad guy in this situation. So that's the first reason. I think the second reason may be that this is partly how Paul sees it. And I, this is picking up on something that you said before, is that you get in moods, you know, when you're looking at like, why did this relationship fall apart? Why did this job, why did this ha happen in my life? You know, you can sort of look back at periods and think, why did that happen? And sometimes when you're in a really clear state of mind, you can be like, yes, I see the bigger picture of why that happened. And then sometimes when you reconnect to the emotional part of it, you just kind of get back to that hurt part of you that's like, they just didn't care or I was mistreated. And I think sometimes Paul just goes back to his own perspective of he thinks that John acted like he didn't care and he's hurt by it and yeah. angry. And he doesn't really know John's point of view. Like it was interesting how he said that watching Let It Be was interesting for him because he'd always performed with John. Like John was just always next to him. And when you're performing with somebody, you don't look at them a yeah, lot. Yeah. You don't spend a lot of time studying them. And he said it was interesting because he could actually watch him mm. as a performer. And I think that that is analogous to the fact that Paul doesn't know John's interviews like we do. Mm. You know, kind of ridiculously, I know all of John's 70s interviews way, way, way too well. But like when you dig into them, you're like, oh, I get John's perspective. And it's not that he didn't care. It's that he felt he had no power and was vulnerable and, you know, mm. all of these reasons. But Paul doesn't know that. Paul doesn't know what he was thinking. And like, even if you think of like a breakup that you've had, at some point you get over it. You can sort of make sense of it, but you never really know why the other person did what they did unless they tell you, you mm. know. I'm just so my, so yeah. <laughs> so the second reason is just I think that we may know the larger story. Like we may assume that Paul knows a bunch of stuff that he doesn't know because they broke up and Paul's asked all the time, but I don't think that Paul's like digging deeply into John's 1970s interviews and his, you know, TV appearances like we are. He knows a lot of stuff that we don't, obviously. He knows the interpersonal stuff. But John has said that he used interviews as therapy. I think that John probably communicated a lot that Paul may not have seen. And so, you know, to some extent, he may not know who, you know, we spent two years digging into the divorce and then telling the story over another year and a half. And I don't think Paul McCartney has spent that much time. It may have helped him since he's been asked for, you know, 50 years about it. No. But he may just not know, you know? Yeah, I think that it, it's it's in keeping with Paul's personality to um, to want to escape unpleasant things. Yes, he's, that's he's, right. It's the band on the run thing, right? From the beginning, it's let's go away to Scotland um, because the, you know, the atmosphere here is awful. 
Uh, right. I, I can appreciate that. Um, but yes, it's also revealing that, you know, when, um, when Yoko says to Philip Norman, John said, nobody hurt me the way Paul hurt me. Um, Paul's response is utter bewilderment. And, and it is. you know, it, it does suggest he, he, he does not understand where this person is coming from. And then the next time he brings that up, and I think it's to Hunter Davies, Yes. Um, he starts going, well, what about all of the times that, that John hurt me? No one ever talks about them. And again, I can appreciate his perspective, but both at the point of bewilderment and then at the point of, you know, assertion and defense, he's not trying to understand John. He's admitting he doesn't or he's asserting himself. So yeah, I think that that um, supports what you're saying. It does, actually. And those are excellent examples of like, Paul is clueless. It, it suggests that he doesn't deeply understand the power that he had to hurt John and how much John may have been reacting to him. Yeah. Yoko knows, because Yoko is like, no, Paul hurt John more than anyone. That means that Paul has the power to hurt John. And that it also shows that Paul's kind of oblivious yeah. to his impact on John. That John was reacting to him in the same way that he was reacting to John. Yeah. I think this is a problem of Paul's. He doesn't understand how much he impacts people. Maybe because Paul's a little bit self-centered or for whatever reason, Paul underestimates how much John was reacting to him. He doesn't understand John's perspective. And at this point in his life, Paul still may not understand John's perspective totally. Yeah. So it could be just honest. Like Paul has been relitigating this in his head. And he's like, I'm not going down as the villain. And also that jackass just didn't care, mm. you know? And it's kind of like, oh, Paul, yes, he did care so much. And, and also it may hurt Paul to know that John did care and was giving him an opening because that would suggest that he had the opportunity to fix things and he didn't. And that's a much scarier prospect than just reconvincing yourself that the other guy's an asshole who didn't care. That's right. It's much easier to say, he didn't give me a choice. Mm. I had to do what I did. He was walking away because if John was playing games and was expecting Paul to respond and he didn't, you know, that John, John, basically that was a power move or a stunt to open negotiations. And he was like, okay, Paul, you negotiated with George and Ringo. What are you going to offer me? You know, how are you going to make my life better? What are you going to do to make me happy and stay? And are you going to show me some love? And Paul just walked away. And he realizes later that that's what John needed. That would kill you. Yeah. So I think that Paul's just got to let that one go and be like, nope, 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 mm. nope. He, he wanted the divorce. He asked for it. He was doing it. You know? Oh, dirty Maggie May. So that's reason number two. What's reason number three? Well, number three kind of is a little bit contradictory, or maybe maybe these can all exist at the same time. And I, it, like you said, they probably can in different moods. The third reason would be that Paul knew that John was playing games, but kind of saw the fact that John was playing games and trying to renegotiate a different kind of Beatles as being the end of the Beatles that he loved anyways. Mm. So he may have recognized that this is John maneuvering 
and just decided, but if he's maneuvering for different kind of Beatles, it's not the Beatles I love. And so it's over anyways. Yeah. So he might've realized that there was an opportunity not to end the Beatles, but it was going to be a Beatles that he didn't want. And so that was equal to the end of the Beatles anyways. Yeah. And I think that even squares with another of Paul's recent comments, um, in a way, he thinks he's sort of defending himself against accusations of being nasty to George. But there's that comment where he said, oh, we didn't make any active decision to freeze George out of our relationship. We just decided very on that we were the songwriters. And it wasn't, it wasn't you know, actively against George. It was just a, a thing about us and our relationship. So I think in there, he's kind of revealing the fact that as far as he's concerned, the Beatles is this special telepathic dreamlike bond between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. And yes, it needs, you know, the other two sides of the square. But, yeah. but if the, the essence of it kind of evaporates when it morphs into a loose collective of Beatle and co-associate artists, then yes, I can see that in Paul's mind you've thrown away what was most precious and special about this. That's right. And you know what? John said that same kind of thing repeatedly in the 70s, mm. like the Beatles was me and Paul. Ray Connolly said that John would say that all the time. Mm. He did say that in 1980 as well. And we made that point in the divorce episode that they're really only talking to each other in this power play. They don't even remember who else is in the room. They remember the color of each other's cheeks and how they reacted. And it's just a game between the two of them. And unfortunately, George and Ringo were just like collateral damage, really. They didn't have a say. It's the battle between John and Paul. So I think that Paul may look at it and think, if John is trying to negotiate it, that's not the thing I fell in love with. So if he's playing a game, I don't want to play it and it's over in my mind, Mm. you know? Yeah. And so there's a fourth reason I think that um, Paul may be doing this. Um, And that's because I think he knew afterwards that John really wanted to be the one to end the Beatles. Mm. You know, that... He talks about this in 1986. He's like, well, you know, apparently John was upset. This is when he's trying to figure out how he hurt John. And he's like, well, you know, I'm the one that announced it and John apparently wanted to, but whatever. Because I think, rightly so, Paul probably felt like, well, I was a co-leader of the Beatles, so... And by the way, John started the Quarrymen. Paul and John started the Beatles. Or if you want to call John and George started the Beatles. Like, I get why Paul doesn't feel badly about being the one to make the announcement. But maybe after all of this time, he's kind of like, you know what? I'll give it to John. He wanted to be the one to end it. He can have it. I don't want it. I don't want to be called the villain. John can have it. And John loved the story that he left for this magical union with Yoko. I'll even play into that. I kind of feel like Paul is thinking, and that may be the nice side of Paul, is thinking, this is the story that John wanted. I'm going to give it to him. Mm. I find that quite persuasive as well. And it's nice to think that it might be in some way, shape or form a generous act on Paul's behalf. Um, And I think, I I really am going to put this out there. I really think that Paul does often 
behave in this way after people died. I think it is his MO to make people look as good as possible. So for all the people that are cynical, I do think that this could be a motivating factor. Yeah, and it is entirely in keeping with uh, the way I think about John and his MO as well. Um, right back to childhood when he would write by hook or by crook or be last in this book. Every <laughs> That's book right. In Mimi's house. John always likes to have the last word. John can he be does. quite generous about letting other people kind of open a conversation or open yeah. an album. Um, but, you know, look at the, the Beatles albums and there's maybe one or two instances in which John doesn't have the last track. And it's another instance of him always wanting to have the final word, putting the full stop on things. So I think that's probably quite true. Well, even in anthology, they have, uh, you know, John saying goodnight at the end. Like they, they do give it to John mm. because I think Paul knows that that's what John wanted. Mm. They give it to him. And I, I and I think that Paul shows John a lot of love in his actions, especially nowadays. Like he almost over-indexes on telling John's story right now. And I don't think there's anything cynical to that. I think because he loves John and wants to protect John and wants to do what he can for John right now, mm -hmm. you know? So that could be part of it. He's like, it's a win-win. I don't want to be the villain. John wanted the last word. He felt like he should have been the one to end the Beatles. So that's the story I'm going to tell. Mm. And I, you know, and I do think that John and Yoko loved each other a ton, but I also think that they did build their mythology. And Paul's kind of like, you know what? They love this story too. And I'm going to go with that one too, you know? Yeah, which is what he's doing when he says things like, uh, John had had enough. He was, he couldn't wait to, to get on the next ferry with Yoko. Um, yeah, it's sort of, enabling John's hero story a little bit, isn't it? It is. And, and, and so, you know, sometimes I feel like, oh, geez, Paul wants a story. John wants the story. Yoko wants the story. Why don't we just let them have the story? But, but the problem with letting that be, <laughs> letting that story be, was that uh, it's not the story. And it enables John's hero story and it really impacts the story of the Beatles and their positioning so significantly that I think that it's a problem with letting it be because the idea that John Lennon left the Beatles to go to achieve his higher artistic purpose suggests that he was this like restless artist that had to continue to progress. Mm. Whereas you've got McCartney who didn't want the Beatles to end and was holding on to them jealously, like he couldn't live without them. And then when John leaves, he's devastated and heartbroken and goes and hides in the story for like many years in Scotland. Yeah. And it takes him years and years to get out of this depression and he can't get his act together until Band in the Run. Well, that's ignoring the fact that Paul actually put out a great album that was not sad. He puts out a very warm, loving album with McCartney he puts out the album of his career yeah. six months after that. So Paul was functioning as a strong, incredibly dynamic artist immediately after the split. Mm. Not to mention the fact that he got the last word in the last album saying the end. Of course, there's Her Majesty, but he did say goodbye. Yeah, I think that if, if it were true, 
that uh, John needed to break free of the straitjacket of Sakharin M- Engelbert Humperdinck um, granny music so yes. that he could become this brilliant, free, bold, daring artist, then yes. most people in the world will be saying, thank God they stopped making those shitty Beatles albums <laughs> where we could have exactly. the brilliance of some time in New York City. Yes. So <laughs> that's an excellent point. This story has impacted Paul McCartney's story. And that's what bugs me. Even in this most recent New Yorker uh, article on Paul, there is the halo of Paul being brokenhearted. That was the end of his greatness as an artist. Mm-hmm. Like that most critics would agree that, you know, that that was the end of like his really high period. And that infuriates me as somebody who kind of bought into that bullshit and then learned Paul's solo output and realized that there are, there's diamonds everywhere. And we just were led to believe that Paul was devastated because he could never be as good. I mean, like nobody will replicate the magic of the Beatles, but he was still an amazing songwriter in the way that John was still an amazing songwriter. And so. And I think this, there's an interesting um, line in that New Yorker article um, which speculates that the reason the new lyrics book is assembled in chronological order is to frustrate the person who picks up the book thinking all of the good stuff is going to be in the first half during the Beatle years and the rest, you know, volume two, we don't need to, to deal with. And that, you know, putting it in this kind of relatively arbitrary alphabetical order forces people to reevaluate the quality of solo material. Uh, I don't know whether that's a conscious intention on Paul's behalf, but it was at least speculated about in that New, York, New Yorker piece. Well, I would suggest that it's potentially done to obfuscate the arc of Paul's life because this is typical Paul. He'll give you a peek inside and he's like, but I don't want you to put it all together. Mm. So I'm just going to give you little glimpses. You know what I mean? Like if he was telling his whole story in, in chronological order, he would be forced to talk about one thing leading to the other. And instead he can give little snippets like that. But also that New Yorker article, I would say that um, the author is not a particular Paul McCartney aficionado. I mean, you know, I tweeted about this immediately because he made a statement about the fact that he was saying, you know, how popular Paul's concerts were. And he was, he basically made the point that despite the fact that Dylan's catalog is way richer, Paul, yes, Paul McCartney can charge more. And that honestly disgusted me because that's playing into the old trope of Paul McCartney was only good in the Beatles. And I felt like he, he did that very arrogant Rolling Stone kind of rock critic thing where he makes a statement that like, obviously everyone believes. And it's like, Dude, go back to the, like, what is this, 1982 or something? It's like, you think that. So don't write it like that's an understood truism. Mm. And, you know, and I think that that attitude informed the whole piece. Mm. And it was very cynical. And that's the kind of attitude that drives me crazy. And I think that the way that the breakup is told leads to that. When you go and you look at Paul McCartney's interviews from the early 70s, He's no nonsense. He's a really cool artist. Yeah. And unfortunately, right now, you know, we've just gone through all the reasons why he could be doing this. And I think most of them are human, but a lot of it is strategic. I think that you and I were both perplexed at 
some people's reaction that this was somehow news, that this wasn't common yeah, yeah, knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, if, yeah. and if Paul mentions this in every single interview, and now in October 2021, it's still surprising people, then it must be the case that he cannot say it enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, people are surprised that it was John Lennon who said that. But I don't know how many people at this point think Paul did want to break up the Beatles. Like, I just don't think that's part of the image of Paul McCartney anymore. Mm. For a long time, they thought he was maybe arrogant and insufferable. But that's changed a lot in the past, I would say, 20 years. There's a deeper understanding of the dynamics. Now, there seems to be a new wave of authors who want to tell the shout story again so you know maybe he's worried that we're going to go back there but i just feel like i don't i don't hear a lot of people saying like oh paul mccartney was the villain even among people who don't know that john asked for the divorce i mean i think this is the problem paul was so traumatized by a couple of these pr mistakes that he's had to live with and deal with for like 50 years that he doesn't realize that the story has moved on, you know? Yeah, I do. So he's fighting an old war that mainly stems from Mr. So-called PR's PR disasters. And constantly fighting this war has implications and ramifications in terms of image. And I think what he's doing right now is overcorrecting the story. He's so worried that he's seen as the bad guy because of the fallout of the, you know, Paul quits the Beatles and Paul sues the Beatles PR disasters, that he overemphasizes that part of his career. But the problem with his almost single-minded focus on the Beatles is that it makes him seem, or it makes it seem like Paul's artistic heights ended with the Beatles, since he's constantly reminiscing about his glory days with the Beatles. Yeah. And in some ways, I think the focus on the Beatles diminishes his artistic cred overall. You know, and, and he has tried to tell a different story. After Linda died, he championed the wing story briefly, but I think for legacy purposes, he's much more interested in correcting the Beatles story. And I wish he knew that focusing on his post Beatles career would actually help his Beatles legacy. Like communicating that he you know, was a true artist or he was an artist that just never stopped progressing and exploring and creating, which is the truth, is a much more important story than the fact that he didn't want the Beatles to end. I mean, I, I think, anyways, if I was advising Paul, I would be like, no, you know what? You've got a way cooler story that you just kept going and that you have never stopped. Focus on that. But he's so worried about going down as the bad guy that he focuses on it. And he's also worried about going down in history as someone who didn't love John or didn't care when John was murdered because of his, it's a drag PR disaster, you know? Yeah. I mean, clearly John was one of the most important people in his life. I mean, does anyone not think that right now? I think he is also constantly addressing his love for John to counteract the view that he didn't care. That's probably only um, playing in Paul's mind at this point. And he may have regrets that perhaps he was not as forthcoming as he could have been. You know, and maybe now when he's ruminating about the story, he sees that. And so he's trying to address something in public. It really should be between him and John, 
And there's implications from this. He skews the view of their partnership in a way that he didn't in the 60s and 70s when he was frankly just much more normal. You know, when he maintained that they were equals, he was always clear about his love for John, but you know, he seemed more even-handed and balanced at that time. Um, but I think his more recent approach leads authors to conclude that the love and affection and investment in the relationship was asymmetrical. Having dug so deeply into both of their interviews when they were both alive, I have concluded that this simply isn't the case, that their friendship was deep and equal. And this is reinforced by everybody, like anybody who knew them at the time said this kind of thing. But the more insistent Paul gets these days, the more skewed their relationship seems. Also, the breakup mythology is the basis for so much of this because this is when John dictated a new story. When Paul was recovering and he abdicated his place in the media. And so John owned the story at a time when he was really angry and disillusioned and hurt and excused the story. And now Paul, for an entirely different reason, because he doesn't want to be blamed, is reinforcing this story. You know, somebody on Twitter said uh, said something. They were like, uh, you know what? Doggett says that John was exalted by the statement and he was uh, energized and John was freed to do better things. And now Paul is telling this story. For example, this is from the excerpt in The Times today of the lyrics, his book... Um, the lyrics, there's some extracts in it. And this is Paul talking about get back. He plays into this story. Paul says, if my dream at the time really was to get back to where we once belonged, John's dream was to go beyond where we once belonged, to go somewhere we didn't yet belong. Oh, which is quite heroic. It's like John forging, you know, a new path for them all. The thing that drives me crazy is that Paul goes and crashes for six weeks or whatever he does, and then he comes back and he starts recording McCartney. And then within a year, he's recorded Ram. And both of those albums, McCartney and Ram, are revolutionary. So this idea of to go somewhere we didn't yet belong, well, Paul also goes somewhere where they didn't yet belong. He was creating the beginning of indie music. Yes. And at that time, he talks to Life magazine, and he's, he's so much fucking cooler in 1971. He says that, yeah, John thinks of progress one way, I think of it a different way. And he talks about how John wanted to progress by going in, and performing in front of big crowds, while he wanted to go back to the small venues and go back to basics, which is, is a very valid way for an artist to move forward is to go back to basics. Paul does actually talk about, you know, <laughs> get back a lot that year, but the idea of getting back, getting back to yourself, getting back to basics is not necessarily regressive artistically. So the frustration to me in that is that Paul has an incredible story. I mean, I interviewed, um, Eric Wangberg, and he was like, yeah, Paul was having a great time 
in a studio. He was a serious, determined artist, and that is not the story he is telling right now. You know? Yeah, I do. I think that you you're right that、um, that the way Paul tells the story, especially in that little excerpt about Get Back, it makes him sound.、Uh, A little bit like a, a kind of a forlorn, pining wife waiting for a husband to、right. come home, who's sort、right. of moved on from the relationship and still going through the motions, and、right. saying, "You know, can't we get back to the old days before <laughs> the kids arrived?"、Um, there, there is like an, an, an element of that, but it also makes him sound artistically unambitious, which I don't、it、think、does. Paul McCartney has ever been. No, and that's the thing. If you look at all of his interviews, he's always talking about that, about moving forward. And you know who was talking about moving forward in 1969, September 1969? Paul McCartney. We played it in the breakup series. Hello, John Edwards, right here. Oh yeah. Can I just have a brief word with you? Yeah. If you never tour again, would it worry you? Uh, I don't know. No, I don't think so. Wouldn't worry you. But because the only thing about that, you see, is that.、Uh, Performance for us. See, it's it's gone downhill. Performance because we can't develop when no one can hear us. You know what I mean? So for us to perform is、uh, it's difficult. Gets difficult each time. You mean they don't、More、listen to you, and therefore you don't want to do that? Oh yeah, we want to do it, but、uh, if we're not listened to, then and we can't even hear ourselves, then we can't improve in that. We can't get any better. So、uh, we we're trying to get better with things like recording. What about、mm-hmm. what about the image of the Beatles? Now there's no doubt that the older generation who being being very for you, a lot of them have sort of started saying things like, "Oh, they're not like they used to be. What are they doing?、Mm. You know, all this hair and and they're not、It's、so true, snappily you know. dressed. Does this、yeah. disturb you? No, no.、Uh, But you might lose some of your old. See,、so、the thing is, you grow up. You know, everyone grows up, and it is always. A great pity, and in a certain period in our career, we did. You know, we were sort of particularly nice. You know, we had like a, a very all-round appeal.、Uh, it wasn't put on. You know, we just we were more like that. You know, but as we've grown up, we've you become more individual. And so, like, for instance, if you don't want a press interview, you, you know, like these days, we don't have to say. Yes, we're more true to ourselves these days,、mm. and it obviously doesn't please some people. But I think you find like a lot of other people like us for it. You know, I tell you what happened.、We're, once in the old days, we we used to wear leather jackets, and we changed. Brian said, "Look, lads, smarten up a bit. You know, get yourself suits." So we got suits and ties and stuff, and we went on like that. We gained a whole new audience and lost、uh, all the people who wanted us in leather. See, so this is happening again. You know, I think it always will happen that where we'll lose all the people who wanted us to be just four nice, clean-cut lads, and who didn't want us to grow beards. Yes. And、uh, we'll we'll gain all the people who don't care whether we got beards or what. You know, because they're out for us,、yes. not for what we look like or what how nicely we speak. You know,、yes. just they're out for us being truthful to ourselves. That's what they're interested in. If you will top the bill next year at the Isle of Wight, now. What's your reaction to a thing like that? Are you likely to go back on stage and perhaps do a show like that? I don't know. You know, I I don't think so. For me, you see, what happened was、uh, when we played the Cavern, when we played the really early days, we really enjoyed performing. You know, and that that was the fun was to perform. But since then, our things got more into records and songwriting, 
mainly because uh, if you start to perform after, say, the Cavern, you start to perform at, like, Peterborough Empire, Glasgow Empire, Liverpool Empire, you get an act. And, like, we never used to really vary the act. Occasionally we put a new song in. But you get very stereotyped, you know, and we just got an act. I mean, once you knew the act, yeah. there wasn't really much more fun in it, you know, except if anything went wrong or anything went particularly right, you know, but it was normally just, eh, here we go again. So for us, we've done all that you can do in performing. We can get bigger audiences, we can get bigger in quantity, but in quality of performance, it's difficult. You know, I personally, if we were going to do anything, prefer to just go right back to a small club. You would. Just have 50 people in and sing to them, you know, and have a bit of a sing-song. I'd get more fun from that. You would. And what about John? He seems to be... John loves it, to go yeah. back and perform. Isn't sure. this going to cause a sort of division in the group? No, no. I mean... No, the thing is, John wants to do that, you know, and I think it's great, you know. I mean... See, I've just said I don't particularly like the idea of playing to those many people, but I'd hate to stop him doing it. Yes. I mean, he loves it. He did this Toronto thing and had a, a really great time. So I'd be the last person to say, well, you know, don't do it because you've got to just do it with the Beatles and stuff. I think it's a great idea anyway. Mm. I can see how some listeners might think, why is Diana or why are Diana and Duncan um, second-guessing Paul McCartney's own comments about his life. Surely he knows better than yeah. you know than, than we do. Um, but I, I think that's not what's going on. What's going on here is that we're drawing a distinction between what Paul said at one point in his life and what he's saying now and saying, why is there such a disparity between them? Uh, and those who take what he's saying now at face value either right. are ignorant of or refusing to acknowledge what he said at other points in his career. And you don't even need to go back to 1969 or 1970. I think what you're saying about Paul's own hero's story is very present in the interviews he gave for Wingspan. And yeah. that's not that long ago. It's probably about 20 years 2000, ago. Yeah, it's that's 2001. Nothing in Paul years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a great point. We've got 50 years of Paul McCartney interviews, and we managed to challenge the narrative based on stuff that he actually did and actually said. And like I said, when we went back to 1969, who's the one giving interviews saying we have to progress? It doesn't matter if we lose uh, you know, fans. It's Paul yeah. that's saying that. If we look at the behavior, by Christmas, he's writing an album that he said brought him great joy. And if you look at the album, it's not a sad album. When you look at who wrote the very sad album, it's John Lennon in late 1970. He does write a revolutionary album. like a, It's a radically, radically open, honest album. But I don't think it's any more radical than Ram. Just radical in different ways. So to, to add to your list of potential reasons why Paul is making a very valiant effort to say I wasn't the one who instigated the split. Um, you're suggesting that, you know, reason 4.5 could be that Paul himself has become affected by the breakup narrative. Is that is that fair to say? Yes, I definitely. And, and I think that's where things get confusing is I think <laughs> I think that Paul has lived with this for so long that he has. Um, taken in a lot of the story. And, I, you know, I see this with people that I interview all the time, that they 
play back to me the typical narrative. And then I'll ask them, well, was that your experience? And they'll say no. And then I'll say, well, where are you getting that from? And it's just like, we've all heard it. Paul McCartney has heard it more than anybody. And there's probably this dual impulse is to say, no, it's wrong. And then part of him is thinking, maybe I am the asshole. And he has said that he internalized the notion that maybe he was the bad guy. Maybe he was horrible to work with. And I think that he fights with it too, because he knows from his own perspective that that's not how he sees it. So I think that that's where a lot of his churn comes from. And that's why he needs to make the statement that no, it wasn't me. I didn't break it up. John did. And so he's almost waging a war between the narrative that is coming from the external and his own truth that's fighting against that. And that's why it seems a little bit weird. Like, yep, John asked for the the divorce. Why are you still, you know, why are you still so keen to make this point? And I think it's very, very important for him. He is willing to go down as somebody who did not have his own hero story. He is so adamant to make sure he doesn't get blamed for the breakup. Yeah, I I think that's that's quite right. I I mean, you know, I'm very critical of Paul right now. It's so hard to listen to him right now because unfortunately I think he's fighting so many battles in his mind Mm. that I'm not sure what to believe. It doesn't always feel authentic, but on the other hand, when I think of the fact that they break up, he's blamed for the breakup. You know, he was celebrated as this genius artist until 1970 and all of a sudden everybody starts to say you suck and says that you suck for the rest of your life. And they say that John Lennon was the better partner, you know, like you could stand that for a while if you've got a really good, strong sense of self and confidence. Mm. But after a while, I mean, after a while, if you're a normal person, you start to think, maybe I was just delusional. Maybe, maybe John was the God. Mm. And I was just, you know, like, I don't blame him for eventually starting to buy into the story. And he pushed back against it for so long, you know, like in yeah. the 80s, he was still so tough about it. And I, I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And, and that's probably 98% coming from Linda. Yeah. But I, I do empathize with how confusing this whole situation would be for him. Yeah. You know, to, to A, have, have to deal with, with an angry, disillusioned, bitter, hurt, withdrawing partner it would have been incredibly hard. So as much as we beat him up, I mean, I, I can't even believe, I don't think he's particularly sane right now. I have my suspicions, <laughs> maybe much less normal than we think he is. But the fact that he's as sane as he is, is probably a miracle. The thing is, I want Paul to have his proper story. He's a great artist. And so I don't want him to spin the narrative to an extent where his reality isn't properly represented. And I think, unfortunately, Paul has become a bit of an unreliable witness right now. If you want to talk about hero stories, it's only natural for both John Lennon and Paul McCartney to be the heroes of their own stories. And what Paul seems to be either willing to do or doing without really realizing it is turning John Lennon into the hero of Paul McCartney's own life. That's right. And I I think that your point is exactly the problem. 
he's bought into the dominant narrative to such an extent that he now sees John as the hero of the Beatles story, something that he didn't see in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I don't totally blame him for that, but I kind of wish he just would tell his story and let us, let us figure out I thought there was four reasons, then I thought there was 4.5 reasons, and now I think there are five reasons. This is the fifth reason, and I think it is actually the most important. We mentioned that George didn't take John as seriously as Paul. Absolutely. I think George Harrison communicated an uncertainty when it came to the subject of their future. Right, for the next year. Um, he, he continued to reassure people that, you know, things would blow over after they did their individual albums. He was sure that they would get back together. And this was after the Paul quits the Beatles headline. Um, and I think that the Beatles being done was not a done deal, uh, as you said, potentially until the lawsuit. I mean, let's just talk about this for one second, because this is what I believe, that Paul is going so hard on this because he doesn't want to be blamed, but also, 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 I think he wants to convince himself. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think, you know, there's some part of his brain that knows he's the one who made it real. Uh, and the, the, the guilt of that or whatever you want to call it, um, is something that is upsetting him. And I can understand why, if you're in your declining years, it would be one of your chief regrets if you're Paul McCartney. And so he's finding a way of, of saying, well, I'm not really the one to blame because I didn't instigate all of this. Right, 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 right. <laughs> right you just because, ended it. <laughs> yeah, because again, after all of our investigations, you know, my conclusion, as is yours, is that really it wasn't over until the lawsuit. And who brought upon the lawsuit? It's Paul. And so I think, you know, that makes him guilty. And the thing is, I don't necessarily think he was. And that's why the whole breakup series, we said, look, you know, this was, this was all a number of actions that spun out of control and resulted in the lawsuit. Like that was the end result. And so I don't think Paul is to blame, but I think that he is ignoring the fact that until then, there probably was uh, an ability to save the Beatles. And maybe they were all in such a mindset where they couldn't see that. But in retrospect, when we look back, I think, you know, as you said, for all of the George was done, you know, George couldn't wait to get out of the Beatles. There's lots of evidence to suggest that 
George wanted to do his own album, but he also wanted to continue with the Beatles. And they all did in their own ways, I think. I think, personally, that the one that was driving them to split, honestly, was Paul. Mm. I would probably just pick up on Paul's word instigate. Uh, it'd be very difficult for me to actually say this if I were the journalist in the room with him. But what I would like to say is, um, Paul, you may not have instigated the split, but don't you think that you concluded it? You made it happen? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I think that Paul, without being able to articulate it, is saying this. It was over when John said those words to me. That ended it. He told me he wanted it to end then, and I took him seriously, and then I checked out. Like, I dealt with it, I suffered through it, and then I went through with it. And so don't blame me if he changed his mind two months later. The hurt was there, the decision was made, and I followed through. Yeah, or, or, I, I agree with you. Um, I suppose the way I might put it is he's thinking something like, I might have been the one who made it real. I might have been the one who took us all to court, but I would never have done those things if John hadn't first instigated the split. So he's kind of tracing the origin of this particular story back to its inciting incident and, you know, laying all of the blame onto that as a way of kind of absolving himself. Yeah, and I mean, the thing is, is that I, I believe him. I, I think that's true. I believe this would not have happened had John Lennon not made that statement. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it would have eventually, but at that time, it would not have happened. Paul McCartney would not have instigated it at that time. So mm. I get why he's saying that that is what put everything into action. And that's fine. But it doesn't recognize that often people instigate things and then they change their minds. You can't hold them accountable to something that they said once and then change their mind about, you know? I think that the thing is, is that hit home so deeply for Paul. And, and that's probably why the Scottish retreat is so important because Paul wasn't hanging out in London, talking to John, seeing him day to day. He took him seriously and dealt with it and processed it. And he had been processing it all year. You look at his songs, you know, the end, um, Golden Slumbers carry that weight, like all of those touch on these themes of ending. And it's kind of like, I think something that Paul was afraid of all year came to fruition. When John said those words, he took him too seriously. And then he went away and he dealt with it. And then he wasn't open anymore to John's walking back, I think, you know? Um, tempted as I am to, to rephrase what you've just said in my own words, I, I don't want to because I couldn't put it better. I'm quite certain, Duncan, you could put it better, <laughs> for sure, but um, okay. So 
So we just made the point that Paul and John both have great girl stories. And yes, Paul was sad. But what this doesn't take into account is where John was at this time. One gets the impression, from what the way Paul tells the story, that John was elated during this whole time. But as we discussed in detail in the breakup series, this was a very volatile point in John's life. And he might have made this declaration, which happened a couple of days after they had just lost the battle for Northern Songs. Within days of both John's triumphant return to the stage and Paul rejecting all of John's suggestions at the 4442 meeting. So all of this is gone on. And so we need to look at John's statement in this context, that this might not have been the well-considered, thoughtful, decisive move that it's positioned to be. If he had been feeling like Paul has way too much control, you know, all of a sudden he says, I want a divorce, and Paul gets pink and is like, what? He has power. Yeah, and I was just thinking that, um, again, it's actually very in character of, of John to, to make a kind of really provocative and upsetting statement like, I want a divorce to people very close to him, and to be quite excited about that, purely because a, John Lennon likes to be provocative, yeah. good, bad, or ugly. Um, yeah. And John Lennon likes to leap naked into the unknown with both feet. Yes. Um, but, you know, once he gets there, he realizes he's shivering and cold and, and naked. Yes, and yes, he, then yes. And he needs help. I've changed my mind. <laughs> exactly. And he's like, you're supposed to know this is me, Paul. Exactly. And so, yes, there's that side of John that likes the thrill of doing something new and being provocative. And Paul, by all accounts, is extremely guarded with his emotions. And John didn't know what Paul was thinking either. And when Paul reacts and goes, don't, don't leave, like, that would feel good if you felt like this person didn't care. All of a sudden you yeah. feel like, oh, I can hurt them. Yeah, and I I can hurt them because I matter. And that is important to me because they matter to me, you know? Yeah. And so he probably did have an adrenaline rush after that. He's in control again, but then he does an interview, and this is really important. He does an interview a few days later with Barry Miles, and it gives a lot of insight into John that showcases that he had this high, and then he had an incredible crash yeah. days later. Because ultimately, I think the quitting was the exciting part. I think the reality hits a few days later, and he's like, that's not really what I wanted. I wanted love and attention and power. And now shit, we're in this situation where I've thrown this out and who knows what's going to happen. And so I think we should explore what he told Miles. Mm, I agree. I think if you consider John Lennon to be somebody who is experiencing one long galvanization and Paul McCartney through that entire period as someone who is torpid into inactivity, then you're making two-dimensional characters out of real people. Yeah. And the nuanced experience of a range of emotions and impulses is much more accurate and much more interesting. <laughs> Agreed. So when we look at this idea of John being exalted, that is because we have been told the story of what happened at that event, the way John reacted. Paul's recollection that John was excited has left us with this impression that, you know, that was 
John's feeling for the next two years. And looking at this interview gives us a very different point of view on John's perspective at the time. Yeah, I think that um, in a way the bigger project is to is not to deny that, for example, Paul McCartney experienced sadness or depression in the years when he or other people talk about him experiencing sadness and depression. It's a, it's a way of saying, yes, but you're throwing so much light onto that one experience that yes. all these other things that happen in the shade are being ignored and we're choosing to focus on them because they also happened, not because we think that they are an alternative or a different or a contradictory telling of the story. Yes, thank you for articulating the premise of my podcast. Um, <laughs> but, but, but it's so true. I think Paul was sad. Yeah. But that isn't the only part of Paul, and that's the frustration with the way Paul is telling it. He himself is ignoring the other part of the story. And, you know, it's not that I don't think that John was excited by this meeting with Yoko uh, and all of the events that they did. I think that is real as well. It's just that there was also a whole other side to John that was insecure and sad and hurt and, you know, reacting to his partner, Paul. And I think with John, culture likes to highlight John's, you know, hero story. Mm -hmm. And our culture likes to focus on Paul's sadness story. Mm -hmm. And it likes to focus on Paul's loving comments about John and John's angry comments about Paul. And it creates this wide chasm between the two men. And it's mm. so wrong because both exist in equal parts almost for both men. Yeah, I agree. So I think that that is our job to look at, at all of these perspectives to get a more whole view of the Beatles experience, the Beatles story. Absolutely. Think we're done with the divorce? Well, think again. In the next episode, we will turn our lens onto John Lennon and the interview he gives only a few days later. Please stay tuned for this episode. I consider it to be an incredibly important subject to the Beatles story and the breakup. We will uh, dig into the wildly unexplored interview that John Lennon gave. And it's important because it provides a ton of insight into a different part of the story. It will be out very shortly as it is a companion piece to this episode. So please look out for it. Thanks for listening. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star rating or review. I got to tell you, it really helps uh, promote the podcast and it helps because this podcast is challenging the dominant narrative. And so it can be polarizing. And so if you love it, any kind of rating, promotion, shout outs, messages, tweets, emails are all so appreciated. And I thank anybody who's done that so far. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please check out the breakup series, which I constantly refer to in this episode, which was done with Phoebe Lord from Another Kind of Mind. And please check out the always fascinating Another Kind of Mind podcast. Thanks for now. We'll be back soon.
，拜拜。